listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this October night in the year 2020 from Civil War Talk Radio pandemic headquarters on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not too far from Dowdy Ficklin Stadium where the East Carolina University Pirates play, not too far from the Brewster Building where my office is and where I normally work, but not working there now and not speaking for ECU or the Pirates or anybody else. And likewise, my guest represents no one but himself, as we always do on the show here. And uh, it is 21st of October, the year 2020, the, uh, one of the feature stories in the past week involved a uh, well-known reporter and commentator who, while engaged in an online meeting with his co-workers, apparently was unaware that the camera was on and he was, uh, more of him was visible than was appropriate for a professional setting. And I just want to assure you, the listeners, that in all 500 plus episodes of Civil War Talk Radio, I have been fully clothed, even though uh, there's no camera involved at all. It's just a podcast. But I just feel that's that's really part of the gig, is to, to be completely dressed at all times and all parts contained within the clothing. So have your mind at ease on that score. Here, uh, speaking of scores, uh, the ECU Pirates lost this past week to Navy, but it was a close game. In the past seven times, Navy has thumped the Pirates mercilessly, but this year the team looked better. And our starting quarterback was held out because of a false positive COVID test. Uh, Had he been able to play, who knows? It's that kind of year. It's been a crazy year. The World Series is underway, apparently. I'm not sure who's in it, but I'm, I'm sure it's interesting, uh, given the, the asterisks that must follow any games played this year. Here in Civil War world, uh, the big news at Civil War Talk Radio headquarters was the arrival of the Batchelder Papers this week. The... Uh, the company Savas Beatty has been reprinting the Batchelder papers, which I'm sure you know are the collection of writings that John Batchelder assembled from veterans who had fought at Gettysburg. And these three volumes of his correspondence with people who were at the battle are an unparalleled primary source uh, for the battle. After the... Uh, uh, beyond the, the uh, official records, this is the, the number one thing that one would want to read about the battle. And now they're available again. Uh, I was able to use some some academic funds uh, to purchase these for the department. So technically they belong to the ECU History Department, but they're going to have a hard time getting them out of my library at home. Uh, as long as I'm still using them. Anyway, they're really good if you're interested at all. I think there are still a few copies remaining. Uh, and Savas Speedy is the publisher. Contact them and 
if you can still get one, I'd, I'd recommend it uh, highly. It's, it's like $150. It's not cheap, but that's, uh, that's what money is for. Related to that, this past week, I got an email from a person who does a military history podcast of some kind. It's not one I've ever listened to, which is no aspersion on the quality of it. I don't listen to any podcasts because uh, I've, I've got this one, and it's you know the baker doesn't eat that many cookies, so I, I don't spend my spare time listening to other people's podcasts. But this fellow uh, emailed and said, would you mention mine on your show, and I'll mention yours on my show, and we can do some cross-promotion. And the thing is, since I've never listened to it, I can't tell you that it's any good. It may be very good, maybe better than this one, but I don't know that, and I, I wasn't going to take the time to listen to a dozen shows and find out. So I, I replied politely, if you want to do a, a paid ad on the show, we'll have someone else announce the name of your podcast uh, if you want to, I don't object to advertising relevant ob, you know, relevant products, but the idea of exchanging endorsements, uh, this, this, I guess, is what happens in the world of influencers. My daughter, who does social media uh, promotions and, and public relations for a living, tells me there are people who make a living just by having websites or YouTube channels where they show where they talk about products they really like and they have millions of followers and then people buy the products and then the companies send gifts to the these influencers hoping that they will get mentioned too. Uh, so the only way an influencer can be successful though is if they don't get paid if the listeners start to, think that they are uh, hearing paid advertising, then the influencer loses all credibility. So I'm trying to keep credibility with you. I, I don't mention products because someone has paid me to or they've traded a mention of this show on their show. I, I don't see any point to that. But if I see something really interesting, and the Batchelder papers are the legitimate primary source, uh, that's a completely unpaid uh, I guess they call it organic uh, mention. Uh, so that's one way to... So if you want a product mentioned on the show, either you can buy an ad straight out, that's fine, uh, or just have a really, really superior product that, that is something everybody in the Civil War world would be interested in. Something I hope everyone will be interested in are the shows coming up in the next uh, several weeks uh, through the end of the fall season. Next week, we have Thavolia Glimpf, uh, whose new book is called The Women's Fight, The Civil War's Battles for Home, Freedom, and Nation. On November 4th, Stephen Barry returns to the show. We'll be talking with him about uh, digital scholarship, non-print uh, ways that people are studying the Civil War. He does that at his uh, uh, project Private Voices, and others will talk about them. On the 11th, Robert May has a seasonal book, Yuletide in Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. We'll learn a little bit about Christmas in the Civil War in the Confederacy. Then two weeks off, it's exam week on November 18th, and you can give thanks that you are not having to take final exams. And the following week, it's Thanksgiving itself on 
November 25th. But we'll come back with Tim Smith, longtime friend of the show, had been scheduled for May of this year, couldn't make it, but he's back now. His new book is The Union Assaults at Vicksburg, Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 to 22, 1863. And then finally on December 9th, we'll wrap up the season with Kenneth No and his brand new and quite hefty book, The Howling Storm, Weather, Climate, and the American Civil War. You can see them all on impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps things up to date there. You can donate to the show, click on the PayPal button, and money flows into the account of CivilWarTR at AOL.com from wherever you keep your money. I don't know how they find it, but that's how it works. It's not a charity. It's not a 501c3. It's not tax deductible. I'm not transparent or accountable for what happens to the funds. Uh, just want to be very clear about that uh, and above above board. But uh, trust me, uh, that's all I'll say. That, let me close one last comment on that regard. I received a really touching email from a longtime fan of the show I've enjoyed corresponding with over the years who, who was having some trouble getting uh, the PayPal button to work with the account uh, that was being used. And the email said, you know, could you have your IT person take a look at this? And the thing is, there's there's no staff here at Civil War Talk Radio. There's me. There's Mark Gaffney, who volunteers generously to keep the website and Facebook page up to date. But there's no HR department. There's no IT department. There's no public relations department. There's, there's nobody else. It's just me. And... Uh, I don't know a dang thing about IT, unfortunately. But I do know something about the Civil War, and I know a little bit more this week than I did last week about Auguste Villick, uh, the subject of the book Radical Warrior, Auguste Villick's journey from German revolutionary to Union general. It's written by David T. Dixon. Uh, David, are you there? I am, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back. We talked about uh, the unknown Gettysburg Address that you wrote about previously in your last visit here. Uh, this time, it's it's an unknown, uh, relatively speaking, Union general. Uh, what brought you to this topic? Well, I seem to have a penchant for uh, obscure characters. That's that's uh, that's kind of my shtick in the Civil War business. So I'm I'm looking for I'm looking for characters that have really uh, compelling personal stories, uh, and they're connected to important events and, uh, and that haven't been written about. So, uh, when I finished the, uh, my first book, I queried some of my friends in the civil war community and I asked them for recommendations. I put together a list and, uh, surprisingly village came up to the top of that list. So I looked into his life a little bit and, uh, he met most of my criteria that I that I, I I need to have before I spend a couple of years on a subject, and so I uh, I dove in, and it was uh, actually a lot more interesting than I thought it would be. Well, it it certainly is interesting. This guy has has quite a remarkable uh, career. He starts out in the the Prussian army. Let, let's talk about his his background. Where where does he uh, where is he from, and and, and 
what, what's his early life all about? Yeah, well, and thanks for that question, because one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book the way I did was uh, not only are the German-Americans in the Civil War somewhat understudied, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, language barriers and, and the fact that a lot of material is spread all over the world, but the 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 Germans in particular uh, really have 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 a, a completely different uh, take on the Civil War than say and, and particularly the Northern Germans, uh, and so so when I when I started to look into um, into Village, I, I I tried to come up with um, I tried to get inside this man's head, and in order to get inside his head, you really have to look at his early development. And if you look at the biographies that other biographies that have been done of German American Civil War figures like uh, like Franz Siegel or Karl Schurz, most of those biographies spend twenty five thirty pages on their life in Germany. And I just didn't feel like this was sufficient in really understanding what, what the motivations were behind uh, these Germans becoming such enthusiastic supporters of the, uh, of the Union in the Civil War. Um, so, so that's why I spend about 40% of the book uh, talking about his background. So Villisch was, was born in 1810. He was born in Bronzeburg uh, in East Prussia, which is now uh, actually part of, the, uh, uh, part of Russia. And um, he was born into the lesser nobility. Um, so, and, and those middle-class nobles, if you will, were expected to serve, in, in serve their country, in this case Prussia, in the army. So, uh, he was, his father was, was a, uh, cavalryman in the uh, Prussian army and would, and, and died at a relatively young age. So Villisch and his brother were orphans when Villisch was about three years old. And they ended up taking very different, uh, paths. Uh, they both went into the Prussian military intending to become career officers and his older brother, Julius, spent his entire career in the Prussian army. Uh, but Villisch, uh, after 17 years in, uh, as a lieutenant in the, uh, in the Prussian artillery, uh, started reading radical literature and uh, got together with a group of his uh, comrades, if you will, and uh, in the 7th Artillery in, uh, in Westphalia. And, and many of them ended up... Uh, being radicalized, I guess you would say in today's terms, and uh, becoming socialists or communists, leaving uh, leaving the service of the king, and uh, and eventually joining in revolution. Well, the the Prussian army at that time was certainly a uh, a very rigid, hierarchical, and you know authoritarian institution. It was very much the king's army. Uh, so the the idea of, of going from that to radical politics is even more extreme than it would be for someone in, say, the American or the French army doing that. Uh, it's really quite a leap. 
it leads, as as you describe in the book, to uh, to actual armed uh, insurrection at one point. But we're going to take a short break and come back and discuss that. We are talking today with David Dixon. He is the author of Radical Warrior, Auguste Willich's Journey from German Revolutionary to Union General. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with David Dixon, author of Radical Warrior, Auguste Willich's Journey from German Revolutionary to Union General. We are talking about uh, Willich's career in the Prussian military. You know, last year, I pulled off a shelf my copy of Gordon Craig's book, The Politics of the Prussian Army, 1640 to 1945, which had been there since graduate school 30 years ago, and I'd always been meaning to read it and finally actually read it. Uh, so as I was reading your book, David, I was really uh, aware of how how much the Prussian army was a political uh, arm of the king in many ways, but how much revolutionary spirit there was also within Prussia uh, after the the revival, after the battle of Jena and Auerstadt, 1806, when Napoleon uh, you know, defeated the, the Prussians, and they had this revival of military spirit, and they helped win the Battle of Waterloo. But the old guard comes back, and the idea of a people's in arms goes away and they get get the Prussian army that we all kind of know and hate from the 20th century. Uh, 
so so it's not surprising, I guess, that some people couldn't take this. But but Villet goes all the way to actually fighting. Uh, how, how does he take up arms against uh, his former comrades? Well, you know, first of all, like you said, uh, I think the the reform spirit that uh, Clausewitz and and others had uh, had envisioned for for the Prussian military, to your point, soon. Uh, I guess it devolves back into, you know, a, a system of, of privilege. And, and Villich began to feel very strongly that, uh, that this privileged set of officers uh, were, were becoming somewhat alienated uh, from the people. So uh, instead, of, instead of being a, a, like you mentioned, a citizen army that is, Charged with defending uh, the people in in the German states or in Prussia in mm-hmm. particular, uh, they've almost become a repress a, a an, an instrument of repression and 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 a group of of elites who are who are made to feel distance from the population. And uh, Village had grown up in the uh, in the household of of a. German liberal uh, thinker and philosopher uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who uh, many would call the uh, father of uh, liberal German theology. So he he had he already had humanist uh, leanings uh, growing up, and so he and some of his fellow officers uh, developed a reading circle where they would read some of the. Uh, uh, some of the more radical philosophers of the day, like uh, Hegel and Feuerbach and 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 those folks, and uh, this theme of 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 alienation from uh, uh, you know f- from the people uh, really troubled him. And so, uh, like I said, this Seventh Artillery uh, Regiment that he was a part of. Uh, became infamous as a as as a hothouse, you might say, for radical ideas, and uh, there were uh, a number of of, uh, of U.S. Civil War generals, uh, uh, Joseph Wiedemeyer uh, uh, of New York, uh, uh, Fritz Anarchy of uh, Milwaukee, uh, a number of those folks in that in that Seventh Artillery. Ended up becoming, like I said, radicalized and uh, and leaving leaving the service, uh, which which was a very very difficult thing to do. Uh, uh, fortunately, Villish wrote a pamphlet. It was a seventy eight page pamphlet that I uh, luckily had a uh, friend in Germany uh, transcribe for me, word for word, and translate. And uh, and he gives a very intimate account of of the struggles that he had in, in coming to terms with renouncing his, his nobility, uh, uh, leaving, you know, a, a successful career in the military and basically turning his back on his family, uh, and his, and his friends and his peers and his comrades in arms. So this was a very, uh, wrenching decision for him. He had somewhat of a, a, a nervous breakdown in the middle of it, uh, and, and made an appeal directly to the King, uh, which of course uh, resulted in a court martial, and uh, but he was allowed to resign. It, it's interesting how many other former uh, 
or how many names you cite in the early chapters of this book who show up in the Civil War, in the American Civil War. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the ones you mentioned, uh, Siegel, uh, Carl Schurz, uh, but also uh, Hecker, Schimmelfennig, other names that are mm-hmm. not as quite as well-known, but, but there's a lot of these people involved here. So he does end up uh, participating in the, the revolutionary actions in 1848 and again in 1849. Uh, they aren't successful. We, we know Prussia is not overthrown. And indeed, the, all across Europe, the, the revolutions of that era don't succeed. Uh, where does he go after that? Well, he bounces around uh, a little bit. There's, there's actually three uh, armed rebellions, two, at least in the German states, two in mm-hmm. 1848 and one, uh, the most significant one actually in 1849. So in between a couple of those, he refugees in France. Uh, then after the 1849 uh, rebellion, he first ends up in Switzerland. By, but by this time, uh, the other powers in Europe are putting a lot of pressure on uh, Switzerland and France not to harbor these, uh, these political refugees, these, these revolutionaries, and, and allow them an easy, uh, an easy port of entry back into another revolution. So uh, the kind of the refuge of last resort, if you will, for many of these people, not only Germans, but, but you know, uh, Italians like Mazzini and Garibaldi, and you can go all the way down the list, the Hungarians, et cetera, et cetera. Many mm-hmm. of them uh, end up in London. And so it's in London where, uh, where he ends up uh, participating in, in, other radical groups, workers' groups, and also the uh, the Communist League, which at this time is chaired by a an unknown, really named Karl Marx. I mean, we know him very well now. He's very he's very famous. Uh, at this time, Marx is is known by a few dozen people, uh, mostly in Cologne and, of course, in London and in, in those radical circles. But uh, Villach is a very well known. Uh, a revolutionary as a result of his military exploits, uh, and uh, and Marx is uh, Marx is not very well known at that time. It it, uh, it it I found that a very interesting thing to read about how he was he's not well known. Uh, it reminded me of uh, I can't recall the name of the baseball player for the old Washington Senators uh, who was in the minor leagues the same time as Fidel Castro. And, uh, you know, Castro, I don't know, couldn't hit the curveball or something and ends up uh, <laughs> choosing a different different career. And the other guy goes on to play Major League Baseball. And, you know, the joke was if the other guy couldn't hit, he would be the, uh, you know, the premier of Cuba today. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it's it kind of the same thing here that, that Marx is the minor league guy and everybody knows who, uh, who, who Villish is when he comes to London. And at first, uh, Marx and Engels and, and, and Villisch are all working together, but that goes south pretty quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, there. Uh, and both Villisch and Marx like to like to paint that as strictly a uh, philosophical differences, but there are also intense personal differences too. So, on the philosophical side, Marx realizes correctly. Uh, very quickly, uh, that 
the prospects for continued uh, rebellion in Europe are, are dim at best, uh, pretty much non-existent. And, and this, during this period, which is 1849 to, say, 1851, Marx starts to refine his theories about uh, long-term perpetual revolution, uh, different stages of economic development that need to happen before you can get to something like full-fledged communism. Villish, on the other hand, uh, is chomping at the bit and believes that, uh, that they should try again and again for immediate violent overthrow. And so those are the basic philosophical uh, differences that start to to split the two. And then on the personal side, of course, like I mentioned, Villish is the popular champion of the workers uh, and you know, has fought with them side by side. Marx, on the other hand, is, is, is uh, not only a, a tremendously disagreeable person, uh, <laughs> he also uh, spends all his time in the British Library. Uh, so he's the thinker, uh, Villish is the fighter. Uh, and and uh, also Villish makes some, uh, some rather untoward advances towards Jenny Marx, uh, the wife of Karl Marx. Uh, uh, but, of course, at the same time, Marx is uh, banging the housekeeper. So uh, <laughs> there are a lot of uh, romantic uh, uh, conflicts among this refugee uh, community in, uh, in London. We could probably write a whole book about that. But uh, so they, they end up... Uh, uh, Marx ends, ends up uh, insulting Villish to the point of uh, Villish is ready to challenge him to a duel, uh, one of which, of course, Marx would, would never accept. Uh, mm-hmm. But one of Marx's acolytes uh, steps in, challenges Villish. Uh, they travel to Belgium and conduct the duel over there. And uh, I'll, I'll leave the readers to read about the duel. It's quite an interesting <laughs> duel. It it is the, uh, the the line you quote of Marx's wife <laughs> says about Villish. Uh, he would come to visit me because he wanted to pursue the worm that lies in every marriage and coax it out. Uh, exactly, <laughs> it's a very vivid way of, of putting it, and understandable why someone a husband would not care for that. Uh, so they end up really uh, going separate ways. Uh, Marx and Engels condemn. Uh, Villish and, and all his ways and for a variety of reasons this brings us to the United States where uh, Villish travels I think it's 1853 when he gets to the United States he finds a country that is not at least has a subsection of people who are not especially welcoming to immigrants uh, what was the the temper of the country like in terms of immigration in the early 1850s? Yeah, of course. This is this is a time when you have a flood tide of of immigrants, and uh, he lands in New York, where, like many of, of the immigrants do, and then uh, at least the Germans fan out from that point and and start to uh, go to uh, centers like Cincinnati, Milwaukee, St. Louis, where large uh, large groups of uh, of German settle, uh, you know. At first, Villish, Villish is pretty surprised, and he recognizes very early on that uh, something like communism is 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 just not going to fly in America. This is a completely different situation. Uh, 
this, you already have a, a, a popular Republican government, which is something that, that he believed in very strongly. And he also, uh, despite the fact that the workers there were, uh, uh, he felt were somewhat exploited, they still had, had it much better than they did in, in Europe at that time. So for a while, he takes a break. He goes to work for the Coast Survey, actually is out at sea for a couple of years. Uh, and he's taking a break from his revolutionary activities, but this, this nativism that you refer to, this, 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 uh, this prejudice against recent immigrants really surfaces with the Know Nothings, uh, or the American Party in the, in the mid 1850s. And this really brings Village back into, uh, you know, after probably, uh, uh, you would say seven or seven years or so of, of just exhausting uh, revolutionary activity. He takes a break at sea and then he comes back and, and this nativism brings him back into, uh, into uh, political activism. And so he, um, he spends some time in Washington, D.C., uh, becomes president of the Steuben Society, trying to promote uh, more of a German-American nationalism, if you will, uh, and through those efforts, he gets noticed by some people in Cincinnati who draft him to, uh, to move to Cincinnati and become the editor of a, uh, of a German language labor paper. This is the first, uh, daily labor paper in America. Now, in addition to wanting to, you know, end the exploitation of workers in the North, uh, village also has to encounter slavery, which is not the feature of the European scene. What's his response to, to that American institution? Yeah, so I, I think when I was studying this, I think you have to separate the, uh, the, the run-of-the-mill German immigrant from, say, the 48 uh leaders like Schurz, Siegel, Willisch, who are coming mm-hmm. over. The, the German-Americans as a group are, are anti-slavery for the most part. Uh, and fairly strongly anti-slavery, but they certainly are, most of them are not abolitionists. Uh, Villish and Siegel and these other folks that I mentioned, at least, at least in the, in the beginning years are, are definitely radical abolitionists, but not, not in the same sense that we think about, uh, religious, uh, uh fanatics or, or, or religiously motivated abolitionists from New England, let's say. These, these are transnational abolitionists who, who see slavery uh, not only as, as morally repulsive, but they also see the roots of, of chattel slavery and the, and the roots of what they called wage slavery as, as coming from the same place. In other words, it's both about, uh, both, in both senses, it's, it's about exploiting workers. Uh, it's about a, uh, a slave-owning aristocracy similar to the, uh, to the uh, royal aristocracy that they were battling in Europe. Uh, and instead of in the North, it's, it's really an aristocracy of wealth and privilege. Um, so one, one, one of Villish's friends, when the, uh, the Civil War started, they said, 1861 is like 1848 all over again. They, they, they felt like they were uh, fighting for the same 
type of 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 uh, of rights, uh, human rights, in a in in a different context. And slavery was was uh, was certainly uh, a part of 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 a broader uh, a a broader problem of trying to create a a a society and frankly a world uh, where. Uh, where all people were equal and uh, and people had uh, had rights and, and workers had rights. So that the slavery the, was. Uh, go ahead. I say well that that's there's no hesitation in Village's mind when the war begins that he needs to get involved in it, and we'll talk about that in the next segment. We'll take another short break. Come back and talk some more with David Dixon, author of Radical Warrior. August Willich's journey from German revolutionary to Union general. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David Dixon, author of Radical Warrior, August Willich's Journey from German Revolutionary to Union General. We've been talking about uh, Willich's pre-war career as a, a Prussian officer, then a active revolutionary against the uh, governments of the East, uh, of some of the German states, uh, uh, serving uh, alongside Marx and Engels at the beginning of the Communist League in London in the 1840s, early 50s, but then coming to the United States and adopting his ideology to the conditions of the United States and seeing slavery as one of the great uh, 
as as you David, as you said at the end of the last segment, intimately linked to the the oppression of workers in Europe, the oppression of black workers in the South uh, was just another form, a more severe form of the oppression of white workers in the North. So he goes to war. Uh, he joins the 9th Ohio Regiment at first, which uh, I have a soft spot for that, having uh, written a little bit about it. Uh, tell us about the 9th Ohio. Yeah, so the 9th Ohio was the first... Uh all German regiment in uh, in Ohio, and uh, like you said, Villach was 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 already preparing for war as early as 1857, 1858. So uh, by the time that Fort Sumter is fired upon, uh, he has 400 uh, workers. These are separate from the Turner societies, for, for example. So he has 400 of these workers who are undergoing military training. They're armed. They're drilled. They're ready to go. So he's he's waiting for this tipping point event, uh, like Fort Sumter. So he couldn't be more pleased about that. So, so he uh, he enrolls. Uh, he lies about his age. So uh, at that time, he wanted to be an officer. Of course, he enlists as a private. But in order to be an officer, I think at that time you had to be uh, forty years old or under. He's he's already fifty years old. So he lies about his age. Enlists. Uh, and is made adjutant in the 9th Ohio, uh, quickly becomes uh, a major and uh, the acknowledged father of the regiment. Uh, I think it's interesting about these German soldiers uh, that they were, they're, they're quite different than their typical uh, native-born American counterparts. So on the average, they're about two years older than, uh, than their native-born counterparts. Uh, many of them have had... Uh, military experience in Europe. In fact, all of the uh, company captains uh, have had military experience before. Um, of course, they come from uh, urban areas, so they're more resistant to disease. And then, like I said, uh, six of those companies in the ninth Ohio came from Turner Societies. So these these men are uh, are drilled. Their their physical fitness is better than the average. Uh, uh, union volunteer, and they're also many of them are free thinkers in in their religion and, and radical in their politics. So uh, this is a very different group, and uh, we see some early success from the Ninth Ohio, and then subsequently when uh, when Village commands the first German Indiana regiment with the thirty second Indiana Infantry, uh, we see some pretty quick success from those two regiments. And I think that's partly because of the makeup, like I said, and also partly because of uh, Villish's uh, commitment to uh, drilling in the, in the Prussian, uh, in the Prussian style, if you will. That's right. At some point, the war department tells every regiment you you have to use Scott's tactics. You have to drill people the same way, but the, <laughs> the German regiments are said, no, we're doing it our, our way and we're, we're good at it. And, and no one interferes with them. Uh, right. The, uh, one of the interesting things you pointed, some of the differences of these regiments, they, they have a beer ration, for example, uh, that their <laughs> officers supply. But you also point out that, uh, in the 32nd Indiana, which uh, village becomes a colonel, they do not have a chaplain, or they have one briefly, and then uh, eventually the colonel gets rid of him. Uh, he had no use for organized religion. 
Yes, yes. He was, uh, I, I think it would be generous to call him a free thinker. I would really call him an atheist. Um, so, uh, and one of the, when the Ninth Ohio was formed, uh, for example, uh, the, one of the attorneys in Cincinnati uh, who helped form that Ninth Ohio later said that he didn't think there were, there were a hundred Protestants in that entire uh, regiment. So most of his men were free thinkers. So when, when, a, uh, when a chaplain was, was more or less forced on him, uh, I think the first one lasted four or six weeks, something like that. Village himself would conduct the graveside services. And, uh, and after the, the, the usual uh, memorial, he would launch into uh, uh, dissertations on all types of subjects, uh, political and uh, scientific, for example. So uh, <laughs> these were very unusual uh, memorial services once they got into combat. Uh, he did, uh, of course, eventually have to uh, have a chaplain, but he, he considered them uh, as excess baggage. Now, the first significant fight that the 32nd and, and their colonel, Colonel Village, gets into is at Rowlett's Station, Kentucky. Uh, it's a small engagement, but it, it made a big splash at the time. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and, and, and you've, written, you've written about this, I know. Uh, the, at this time, I think it makes a big splash because the, the war is going so poorly uh, at the end of 1861. For the Union, so they're looking for any uh, any little victory uh, they can they can try to have to to pump up morale. Uh, but the the engagement really uh, is, from my knowledge, uh, the first example of an old Napoleonic uh, tactic: the hollow square being used as a defense, a successful defense against a, a cavalry attack. So. Um, so uh, several of his uh, companies were were attacked by an overwhelming force of uh, of Terry's Texas Rangers, and uh, they they had been well drilled, so they formed this hollow square and uh, and successfully repelled this uh, these uh, these assaults over and over again, uh, killing uh, Colonel Terry and uh, and winning some some uh, widespread acclaim. Um, I think I think I think the more interesting part of that really was the success of their of their pioneer corps uh, or pioneer uh, company in this case. Um, you know the, that may the uh, the hollow square defense may have gotten all the headlines, but I think uh, the work that they did in, in bridge repair and 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 some of the uh, some of the innovations they made in terms of uh, of logistics and in terms of uh, of uh, of engineering were, were, were probably even more successful in that, in that campaign. Well, speaking of innovations, uh, I'm going to leap past battles at Shiloh and Stones River that uh, Village participates in uh, to talk about the, his tactical innovations later in the war, the idea of advancing fire or advance fire. How did that work and, and why was it successful? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I, I have to tell you that uh, I many people have called Villish's advanced firing technique an innovation, but I you can find roots of this uh, going back into manuals, uh, uh, English manuals, for example, in the 1600s. So 
I think Village's uh, real talent uh, was not as much innovation as it was adaptation of, of the techniques that he had learned. And, and the man was a sponge, so he he he, he took all of this uh, this learning and could really think on his feet. So advanced firing uh, really involved uh, instead of having the uh, the regiment form their line in, uh, in, in two ranks, they would form it in four ranks. And so one of, one of the challenges, of course, was, was trying to, to increase rate of fire uh, versus taking, uh, I think, 20 seconds on the average to, to reload. So if you form in four ranks, the first rank would fire, and then, and then the fourth rank would, would run up in spaces between the files and assume the first rank's position and fire because their weapons were already loaded. And successive ranks would would move up after the firing, uh, all the while advancing at a at a methodical rate. So uh, the the uh, Frederick the Great uh, had a similar technique that was called uh, the walking battery. So this enabled. Village to uh, to maintain a constant rate of fire while advancing. He also did this on retreat. Um, he he first previewed it at, at Liberty Gap uh, in in the uh, Tullahoma campaign, and then uh, and then again at Chickamauga, where where two other regiments um, in the Union Army are also known to have used it. So it was a technique that started to gain some acclaim under Rosecrans because I believe Rosecrans was uh, a little more amenable to innovation. Uh, however, when Thomas took over for Rosecrans after uh, the disaster at Chickamauga, then um, advanced firing disappears. And, and I, I think we can assume that uh, Thomas being more of a by-the-book kind of uh, commander uh, squashed it because it just it just disappears nobody uses that that technique after uh, after Chickamauga well after the success that that uh, villages brigade has at Chickamauga they they also enjoy success at missionary Ridge that improbable mm-hmm. successful charge up a steep hill we just have uh, a few minutes left though so I want to leave those for the reader to to explore. Uh, the readers to explore for themselves, and just to ask uh, for a general takeaway. Uh, so here's this remarkable character. Uh, does he leave an imprint on the war, either in ideology or tactics, or, or what? What do we take away from him? Well, I, you know, I think I think it's it's tough to to make any grand generalizations about one person's impact on the war. But what I what I what I would like to say is, in a bi- biography like this, what I'd like the readers to take away is kind of an intimate uh, glimpse at some of the bigger issues that that Village's experience kind of brings to the fore. And and I would say first of all, the the idea that the American Civil War was really part of a, a long term radical revolution uh, focused on democratic government, workers' rights, human freedom. And, and this was a revolution that was international in scope and unprecedented in, in history. Um, 
And then I think the second thing you can take away is that uh, the, the tremendous contribution of, of uh, uh, approximately 214,000 German immigrants to, to uh, the success of the Indian Army. And then finally, I would say uh, that uh, these radical 48ers like Villach played a small role in, in the middle of the war in helping to, to transform a war to preserve the Union into what they saw as a, a, a radical social revolution. Now, certainly there were a lot of other factors causing that to happen, but uh, when, when that did happen and the war morphed from a, a war to preserve the Union into a, 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 a war to, to free some of the slaves, uh, that, that was right in line with, with, with the type of... Uh, the type of objectives that they had in enlisting in the war from the very beginning. So, uh, well, so yeah, th- those would be my takeaways. Well, I, I think that really sums up some of the importance of this book. The, the international context is one more and more authors have been looking at lately, trying to see the American Civil War as part of uh, world history, not just an isolated North American phenomenon. And this book certainly mm-hmm. shows that through, through the eyes of this one very interesting character. Uh, we are, alas, out of time, but there is plenty of time, readers, for you to get a copy of Radical Warrior, August Willich's Journey from German Revolutionary to Union General by David T. Dixon, with maps by Hal Jesperson. I don't need to say more than that. It means the maps are really good. Uh, David, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.